everyone. How many times have your friends recommended a vitamin or a treatment or some natural health awesomeness that changed their life? Probably a lot. Blue Hive Health was designed to take that friendship to the next level. On this podcast, Giovanna and Stephanie will spend time debunking myths and introducing you to the latest in health and wellness treatments, all to support you and your family. Welcome to the Blue Hive Healthcast. Let's dive in. Welcome back to another Blue Hive HealthCast. I'm Giovanna, one of your co-hosts, and today I'm flying solo with this interview, but I'm with one of our very own Blue Hive Health practitioners, Stephanie Farrell. Today, Stephanie and I are going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart as it is to Stephanie's as well, and maybe it might be for you as well. Stephanie is our body confidence coach. She's a certified intuitive eating counselor and an emotional freedom technique practitioner. And on this episode, we dive into really starting to help you reject diet culture, learn about what the 10 principles of intuitive eating are, connect with your body, and start to learn to listen to its signals. I know, sounds like a mouthful, right? I can't wait to dive into this episode with you guys. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited because, well, first of all, um, you're one of our amazing practitioners and we hear so many amazing things about you. And I know that our uh, clients are having amazing uh, sessions and results with you, but in particular, because this Mm -hmm. topic, you know, is near and dear to my heart and it's the topic of, you know, emotional eating. And I think it's, I think it might be near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. I think uh, to some degree, we can all turn to food in some way, shape or form to comfort ourselves. I think there's something in there that's intrinsic to humans. I don't know if it comes from breastfeeding and, and, you know, (laughs) your core, the baby's crying and you, and you, you know, take out, take out the, uh, the breast milk or, or what, but I do see this issue, um, happen with a lot of people. So it is an issue near and dear to my heart. And I know there's a lot of people that are going to be listening to this, um, that are probably going to be affected. So, you know, welcome, welcome. And uh, I want to dive in with you. So maybe mm-hmm. tell me or tell the audience a little bit about uh, what it means to uh, be a body confidence coach and to work with people with emotional eating. And and how does that look like for you on the day-to-day with your clientele? Mm-hmm. Well, um, actually, I'm a certified uh, intuitive eating uh, counselor. So I use intuitive eating as a framework uh, and incorporate my training in trauma-sensitive yoga, somatic energy techniques, coaching and meditation to really help people quit dieting and uh, approach movement in, in a nice and balanced way. So really, I help people unravel those negative beliefs around their body image and uh, and food and help them replace them with an inner awareness and a body trust so uh, we work on things like listening to the body's wisdom including signals of hunger and fullness pleasure and satisfaction and it's really the first principle really for me is to to really liberate people from that diet culture 
Yeah. I mean, I just hearing you say that, I, I think there's so many things ingrained in us uh, because of that diet culture. And I know myself, even, you know, being a trained nutritionist, even in that, even though you've trained in all the healthy ways to eat there, I did, I have noticed in myself and even in some of my colleagues over the years um, where there's this, these just ingrained beliefs you get about foods, right. And what are, what's bad and what's good. And what I love about what you do is, you know, exactly what you said, it's, it's intuitive. And so we're really, you know, bypassing, you know, the, the brain and listening to what the body, you know, wants and needs. And I'm, I'm super curious, like, how did you get into this? Do you have a personal story around this or how is this something that drew you in? Yeah, I do actually. Um, when I was a child, uh, I was in a bigger body as a child. And um, as far back as I can remember, you know, I felt like my body was wrong. Um, there was something wrong with me. There was something wrong with my body. And uh, my mother kind of reinforced this. I love my mother. I'm not blaming my mother, but she had concerns coming from a very good place, you know, a loving mm -hmm. place. She would um, take me from doctor to doctor asking why you know, I was uh, in a bigger body and why I kept gaining weight. And um, she really didn't get answers. Um, and there were a lot of mixed messages actually in my home. So on the one side, she was concerned about my weight and very, very focused on my weight uh, when I was a small child. And um, on the other side, the way she showed her love was to give me food. So I learned from a very young age uh, to cope using food um, with any, you know, any upset or any emotions that I was having. Uh, and then throughout my teen years, I fell through um, into some very disordered eating behaviors and patterns. So that lasted, oh, years and years and years. And uh, it wasn't until I found the techniques and approaches that I use with my clients today that I really helped to heal um, my relationship with food and body. That's, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I love, first of all, I want to draw out something that you said, I mean, beyond the story, which, you know, in and of itself is powerful. And I find, you know, we, we get into this work, of course, from a very personal place. But I love that you said, I was in a bigger body, right? As opposed to saying I was fat, right? which is a lot of the language we use. I mean, I, this is the language I've used for years on with myself as I, you know, I was fat and I'm, that really stuck out to me that you said I was in a bigger body because, uh, you know, to me as a, you know, as a coach and someone who studies the way the, you know, words affect you and the mind works, it's very powerful to say uh, one over the other. And I wonder if you can um, give the audience a little more about that languaging of things and how that might affect your self-perception, you know, the way you think of, um, you know, how you're eating and all of that, because I think that was really significant that you use those words. Mm. Well, I think that, I mean, fat is a descriptor, and really words mean only what you associate with them. So I think that fat, uh, that word has gotten a lot of negative connotations. Um, you know, people equate fat to laziness or other things that aren't true or have been um, relating those uh, certain things to that word fat. But 
I think that reclaiming that word is fine. <laughs> like, I think people are reclaiming that word fat, just as a descriptor. It's just like short or tall or, you know, uh, any of those things. So, I mean, I know that people are recla reclaiming that word, but, um, you know, I use a bigger, I, I say bigger body because um, for me, I, I know that, um, I'm privileged in a lot of ways. I'm a white woman. I'm um, thin. And, um, you know, I just like to be sensitive around that. Yeah, I appreciate you explaining that. And for me, I guess the words stick out, you know, even though we are reclaiming this word fat um, as a descriptor, for me, it's, it, it is a judgment, right? It comes across as a judgment. And that's because mm -hmm. that's been you know, the voice of judgment in my head, right? Like I've, you know, struggled with my weight for, you know, feels like forever, most of my life. And that I am fat is such a judgment. It's a judgment that's been placed on us by society. It's a judgment that then we adopt and take on. And it's also really self-defeating in a lot of ways to speak that way to yourself, as opposed to saying, you know, I'm in a bigger body right now. And I choose to accept that or I choose to change that, right? And it's more of like, it's sort of like when, you know, someone says, uh, I saw this really great meme a few weeks back on uh, Instagram and it said, um, you know, uh, I am depressed and they crossed out the word am and they wrote, I have depression. Mm -hmm. And it makes a big difference taking that am out of it, right? Even though, yes, you're right, it's a descriptor and um, there is power in reclaiming it. But for me, it, it's always been a harsh judgment, whether externally, right, through bullies as a kid or even internally. So I actually love that you use those words. And I think it's really powerful uh, thing to point out if, you know, anyone is struggling that's listening to this, um, just changing your language around that can be pretty powerful. It can be. And I think that uh, another thing you brought up that was really something I was thinking about was the the inner self-critic. And that self-critic that we hear in our in our heads, you know, uh, that voice, that mean girl voice, <laughs> as I described it, yep. gremlin. <laughs> Yeah, that gremlin, um, you know, there are ways that we can deal with that um, to turn that volume down. I mean, first of all, you know, it's there, basically, we have to acknowledge that it's, it's there to actually keep us safe, um, to save us from some kind of embarrassment or some kind of hurt or rejection. So that's why it's there. Uh, but it stops us from doing so many things in our lives. And it keeps us, you know, uh, oppressed, feeling bad, badly about ourselves. And uh, of course, in this society, with all the messages that we take in externally from media, from um, social, from television, from, from diet and um, the beauty industry as well, you know, all those messages, it's, it's normal. It's normal to feel badly in your body. But as I was saying, with the self-critic, you can, you can really learn to uh, turn that volume down. And there's a lovely exercise I do with people to help turn that down. Um, basically, we want to acknowledge it, acknowledge it's there, and then just characterize it. I mean, separate it from yourself, because that's not your true self. That's, that's, that's all critic coming through, right? With yeah, that's perfect. I was, mm -hmm. I was just going to ask you actually for an activity. And that's a perfect one to do um, is just dis disassociating from it or not identifying with it. 
Exactly. And yeah. And so, okay. So that was, yeah. So walk us through, um, you know, whether it's this exercise or, you know, even any other tool that you might want to share with the audience, like, what does it look like for someone? And I'm going to use myself as an example, because of mm-hmm. course I'm here and totally transparent, you know, I'm in my, I'm middle-aged, all right. I'm almost 45. And th- that critic, I catch mm-hmm. her. She's pretty loud. Sometimes I catch her mm-hmm. and sometimes, you know, I'm able to as Elizabeth Gilbert says in, in her book, right, is put her in the back seat and not let her touch the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she's pretty sneaky and she's really loud and, and pretty self-defeating. So how would I, or even someone listening that resonates with that, what would I do in that moment where let's say I'm flooded by that voice of whatever, the inner mm-hmm. critic, or you know, she's that super loud, unhappy girl that's living in there. Yeah, so there are a few things um, that we can do about that. Like I said, turning the volume down. And for instance, uh, we have to have a a few uh, background things. So first of all, we have to make sure we can acknowledge it. Some people can't really acknowledge it. They just think it's their own voice, right? Um, Or they don't want to deal with it, or they push it away somehow. But acknowledging it first. And then second, if you were to go into your mind's eye or close your eyes, and maybe hear uh, something that that inner mean girl is saying to you, whatever that is for you, And if you were able to describe that voice, so is it a young girl? Is it you? Is it um, maybe a domineering parent or adult in your life? Does it sound like you? How old is it? What does it look like? What does their body look like? And if you can really describe it in so, so much detail, it's going to help you to separate yourself or uh, yourself, your true self away from that mean girl. Brilliant. Yeah, I love that because um, one of the things I want to pick out that you said that's so super important for everyone listening Mm -hmm. is it's not you. Like it sounds like you, it has your voice, it takes on your mannerisms and probably your intonation, but it's not you. Um, and that's such a, you know, huge, powerful thing. And there's something I, do, I you know, I do with my, my coaching clients around this as well with, um, you know, parts, right? Identifying the parts. And this mm-hmm. is not you, it is a part that is expressing. And I love, love, love that activity of like, um, really breaking it down and describing like, you know, what is she wearing? What is, you know, I, I mm-hmm. sometimes say like, well, name, name her or name him, right? Exactly. Give, give it a name. Um, yes. That's beautiful. I, I, that's a really practical, amazing tool um, to take away from this. And um, also the, the level of specificity creates more and more disconnection from you know, identifying with that. That's beautiful. Absolutely. And actually, for some people, it's, it's their younger self, you know, it's their child self. It's their five year old self. Uh, Absolutely. That's another part of it, you know, that inner, inner child work. How can somebody listening start to um, maybe implement some tools around, like this was a beautiful tool you gave around, you know, separating yourself from the critic. Mm-hmm. How about intuitive eating? Like this is, it's just a new buzzword going around and, but it's, it's powerful. It's powerful when you can create presence and listen to your body. So what can they do? Do you have a, like a tip or a trick or a tool that maybe they can practice? 
Well, um, intuitive eating actually has 10 principles. And there are some misconceptions out there about intuitive, intuitive eating. Um, a lot of people think it's a, another diet. It's not. Or I it's feel like eating diet. chocolate cake, so I'm yeah, going to eat it. Exactly. <laughs> well, and you can. You might. There's yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, but it's, it's definitely, it's not about weight loss. Um, it's really about listening to your body, uh, reconnecting with your body. Because when people are chronic dieters or when they've restricted their food intake for a long time, um, sometimes their signals of hunger and fullness are lost. It's kind of like they're, they're sort of broken, but we can get that back. We can actually learn to trust our bodies again and get those signals back. So that biological uh, hunger, you know, all those signals that are very uh, subtle sometimes, and people don't really actually realize that. But intuitive eating is not a diet, um, on the contrary, and it's not just eating when you're hungry and then stopping when you're full. Um, like I said, it's got 10 principles. So first one really being rejecting the diet mentality. So extricating yourself from that diet culture. Mm. And, um, you know, diets tend to fail. Um, actually, they, they do fail. They don't work. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, people can lose weight on a diet. And then, you know, the evidence shows you, the scientific evidence shows you that after a couple of years, the weight comes back and usually then some. So dieting is really um, leads to um, higher weight in the long run. And uh, the second principle, as I mentioned, was hunger. So honoring your hunger. So really keeping your body fed with adequate um, carbohydrates, fats, proteins. So as not to trigger that primal drive to eat. You know that expression, hangry? I'm hungry and angry. No, I've never had when that we, experience ever. <laughs> when we get there to that point, you know, it's just like, move out of my way. I'm going to eat anything I can find, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to eat you. So we don't want to get to that stage. We really want to develop that um, connection with our hunger and our fullness signals so that we can real, really rebuild that trust in our bodies. Uh, third principle, really making peace with food. So stop the food fight, really give yourself unconditional permission to eat and um, not, uh, not moralizing foods. So I know there's a lot of food moralization out there, a lot of orthorexic, excuse me, orthorexic tendencies in our society with the wellness diet or uh, those sorts of things, but really giving yourself that permission to eat anything, all those forbidden foods that you might not ever eat. That's really important. I just want to pin that for a second because again, I, I was mentioned to you being a nutritionist and our training in school. And like, I, 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 I joke that we've sometimes churned out um, really regimented nutritionists, but it does, even though the education has good intentions and we're, you know, teaching people about inflammatory foods and we're teaching people about all these different things, it can still develop, like you said, this good or bad approach. And I, you know, I even have to be careful, you know, if I'm putting out a TikTok or if I'm putting out a video that I'm really careful, like not to acknowledge that certain foods can be inflammatory, but then don't demonize them because you're right. We have this really rigid, like, this is good. This is bad. 
right? Yeah. And <laughs> if you tell yourself that you can't, or you shouldn't have a particular food, then it can really lead to an intense feelings of deprivation and Absolutely. that builds into this uncontrollable craving, craving, excuse me, and then often binging. And then the cycle continues. It's guilty and feeling like you've given in. And so, I mean, really allowing yourself to have those foods um, is, is so healing. And it's difficult to get there. It takes some work, but we can get there with intuitive eating. Um, should I bring up the fourth principle? Sure. Yeah. If you're, um, you're on a roll. <laughs> yeah. So I was, we were talking about the, those voices within telling us, you know, this is bad or this is good. It's sort of moralizing food. So challenging the food police, right? <laughs> <laughs> the so, food police i love it yes exactly so it's not like you're bad because you ate a piece of chocolate cake or a brownie i mean for me i don't care if i'm upset or if i want to and this is emotional eating as well emotional eating can be and it is very very um it can be soothing it can be nurturing it can be a good thing but on the other side of it it can also be a bad thing so i was just talking about depriving ourselves of these foods well with deprivation um it comes the like i said the binge cycle where you just have the uncontrollable urges uh, to eat these foods and then you end up binging and then right back into feeling guilty and feeling bad and then eating to soothe those feelings right so it's it's a huge cycle mm -hmm. it can be very very complicated but um but yeah i mean the food police um like the wellness diet um and that's a really critical step it's almost talking to your uh, inner mean girl in a sense right um number five actually discovering satisfaction so i mean the Japanese just have so much wisdom in this. I mean, it really being satisfied with your food, having an experience when you're eating in an environment that's really lovely and inviting and the pleasure you derive from food because food is pleasurable. It's meant to be pleasurable. So really feeling satisfied and content with your food choices and allowing yourself to eat in an environment that's, you know, clear, clutter-free, uh, or you can really taste the food and its nuances and then looking at your fullness, again, we discussed that earlier in terms of losing connection with yourself. Uh, so this is another way that we, we want to uh, practice interceptive awareness, which is a really huge thing that I do with people to help them rediscover their hunger and their fullness. So with the fullness, we want to make sure that we, we know the signs uh, of fullness so that we're never uncomfortably full, but that we're nice and comfortably full so that a meal is going to last us for several hours or, you know, rediscovering how, you know, how to eat. Am I hungry for a snack? Okay. And I eat a snack and maybe it's, it's not filling us, right? Or maybe that meal is not filling us. We want to really honor our fullness as well to trust, uh, trust yourself uh, to give you the foods that you desire. Um, number seven, coping with your emotions with kindness. Now we're kind of talking about mm. this in terms of- It's a big one, right? It's a huge one. And that's really the emotional eating, but, but, um, 
in terms of emotional eating, one thing I have to say is that sometimes people will eat in response to not having their self-care needs met. So we want to look at that uh, first off before we can determine whether someone is actually um, coping with their emotions by using food. It could be that maybe they're not getting enough sleep. I mean, on average, we need seven to eight hours of sleep or, or somewhere thereabouts. Everyone's quite different, but we need to have enough sleep. We need to have enough um, expression of our emotions. We need to have enough nurturance. There's so many things in our self-care that if we're not getting them, um, we tend to maybe eat uh, to try and soothe that or to try and fill that hole that's there in our uh, daily self-care. I can really speak to this one. Sorry to interrupt you. Because I notice with myself, I will always always like just always put on weight when I am not meeting my other needs. And so you're right. I will try and meet my needs through foods because my other needs aren't being met. So this is like super, super, um, like I resonate with this a lot for me personally, and I've seen it also with other people. I mean, I've even seen it in my relationship when, you know, we've, we've both put on weight because we're, um, you know, wrapped up in the world or other stuff going on, or, you know, you're just not meeting those needs, whatever those needs might be. Everyone has individual needs. So that's really, really speaks to me this one. And also, I just wanted to quickly ask Mm -hmm. you in this point, Stephanie, is this where you might differentiate, um, let's say, you know, someone who is emotionally eating to cope versus someone who's full out, let's say a food addict, where there's actual, you know, addiction happening, because, you know, we do know now that, this is possible, right? To be a food addict. Is this at this point where you would kind of differentiate that? Actually, I don't believe in that. <laughs> I have seen so many scientific. Uh, oh, tell me. Suggest... Yeah. It's, I'd love to well, hear your just... opinion on that. I, I honestly don't believe in food addiction. Um, I can, I can back that up by papers, scientific articles. Um, but you know, I think that I think that society takes it a little too far. I think it's it's right up there for me with the uh, BMI, <laughs> body mass index, which is really not indicative of um, anyone's health or uh, that height to weight weight ratio is just. Agreed. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Um, yeah. So I think there's so much villainizing of. Um, um, I think there's a lot of weight stigma out there, a lot of weight stigma. I think there's a lot of, even the medical profession. I mean, you know, there's a woman in Canada who went into the doctor several times over the years, for years and years and years, she was going to doctors and saying, there's something wrong with me. Can you please test me? Well, every time it was lose weight, just lose weight and everything will be fine. The last time she went in, a doctor saw more than her body size and did the appropriate testing and it turned out she had like stage four cancer. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of discrimination in the medical community is still, an, you know, it, again, yeah, something else is wrong with you. And it's like, no, no, just go back and lose weight. And they're not going deeper because they do put a lot of judgment and stigma. Stigma, yes. And and that actually weight stigma affects uh, your health more than, you know, um, more than anything, really, being in a, in a bigger body, the size of your body does not determine your health. You can still take on, you know, healthy activities. You can um, have a healthy way of living, and still be in a bigger body. 
So I'm curious, Stephanie, yeah. what do you what do you think about the research that's out there that does show things like sugar lighting up your brain in in very stimulating ways, the same way, you know, a drug might, or let's say, Actually, for example, glutamine and the opioid receptors, like, I'm curious to know what your opinion is on all of that. Okay, so sugar, for one, I'll just, um, just very quickly say that it's only found that people who are restricting um, have that reaction. So like chronic dieters, for instance, they're chronically restricting themselves, have that reaction to sugar. Interesting. So yes. that reaction is that's so cool. That's interesting yes. to me. Yes. So if you're chronically restricting something, mm -hmm. and then you're introduced to it, your brain will react in that way. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So restriction. And unfortunately, so many people restrict because they want to, they, it's all in the pursuit of uh, being in a thinner body, right? Uh, restricting is, is so damaging. It's damaging to our uh, connection with ourselves. The diet culture is just so damaging. The diet mentality. It's very punishing, right? Oh, it's so punishing. And that's another thing too, with the emotional eating. Some people actually will be in that cycle of restriction and then um, the inability to restrict and, and going to that sort of binge cycle where they eat that food that may have been on their not uh, allowed food list or, you know, um, and then they feel guilty and they feel shame and then they go back into restricting. I mean, how can you not um, learn to restrict when, when there's all these food rules and demonizing of foods and, uh, you know, wellness diets and it, it just drives me crazy. <laughs> it drives yeah, me I could imagine. Absolutely crazy. Um, yeah. So, so in terms of the emotional eating, really learning, uh, is it your self-care? Do you need nurturance in some way that you're not getting? Or do you, do you tend to reach for, for food just to calm or um, really uh, calm your boredom, your, your loneliness or uh, feelings of sadness, whatever they might be, distract from some sort of pain that might be there or, or, you know, really numb you out. I mean, if we're doing that constantly, there's, there's a way to, I mean, there are a couple of ways that we want to actually look at that. So like I said, self-care, is it self-care? If it's not self-care, can we sit with our feelings? And that's a really hard one to do. It's really hard to sit there with our feelings when we haven't for so long. We've had that coping mechanism, but it's really about self-compassion, you know? Uh, so seeing that this has been a coping mechanism and it's turned into a pattern over perhaps years and years to, to soothe yourself with food and seeing that as a self-compassion thing. So maybe at the time when you turn to food to help you cope, you didn't know another way, Right. So, well, absolutely. And it, like you yeah. mentioned before, it comes from that, um, you know, that inner child place where yeah. we didn't know how to cope with our emotions. In fact, emotions when you're that young can be really overwhelming and very flooding. Um, and, you know, overwhelm, I mean, we know that a, a nervous system in a 
state of chronic overwhelm or even just a, an overwhelm that's enough to basically create almost a tsunami effect creates trauma. Like we, we know this now. And you sometimes there's this little girl still or a little boy that's inside of you thinking, you know, if I allow myself to feel that, it's going to be too much. And it can sometimes feel like it's going to kill you. Um, this point around, you know, we talked about earlier, the inner child, you mentioned that. And it's interesting to me because that little person, that inner child, he or she, whoever it might be, um, they often, you know, we don't know how to cope with strong emotions as children. And a lot of times a really strong emotion that we don't know how to cope with either gets buried, um, or we find a coping mechanism and that could have been food. And I, I know just, again, speaking about me personally, that was definitely a coping mechanism and, you know, much the same as you um, in terms of uh, food for comfort. I grew up Italian. So, you know, when something was wrong, it was like, oh, eat something, you'll feel better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so there was this association to that's how you soothe. And so it, it is this learned behavior. And like, just to your point of it's sometimes so hard to sit with those feelings because that inner little you still feels overwhelmed by them. So it's, yeah, this is, it's a, it's a skill of, I, I call it reparenting yourself as an adult, really. Mm -hmm. And I do, I do uh, a lot of work with people over their inner child uh, and I take a trauma sensitive approach. So I think that's really important here as well. Mm -hmm. um, and looking at those experiences uh, that we've had as children and, really resolving them. Um, so that's why I said, you know, coping with our emotions, uh, using kindness and self-compassion. I mean, that's the first stage to look at it and say, you know, I didn't know any other way to deal with my emotions, to deal with whatever trauma may have happened. And it's become a pattern and we have to relearn a different pattern, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so really sitting that and um so take us through eight nine and ten and and sure what the other principles are absolutely so um principle eight is respecting your body right so really accepting that we have i'm sure you've heard of the set point mm -hmm. set point yep um and when we're eating intuitively when we're um feeding ourselves adequately our weight will settle at um, our weight and our body size will settle at a particular point, you know, give or take a few pounds here or there, depending on what's happening in our lives. But really that our body size and shape are um, our genetic blueprint. Uh, principle nine is, is really joyful movement. And I love this because uh, someone who, I'm speaking myself uh, particularly, I um, would over-exercise um, just so much. I don't want to talk about numbers or hours or anything like that here because- A lot. <laughs> yeah, I did uh, very, very much so. So much so that, uh, you know, I was making myself sick. Um, and really, this is shifting the focus from- um, burning calories or, uh, you know, pursuing thinness at all costs um, into really feeling, um, really connecting with your body and doing something that feels good for you. Um, so something that makes you feel 
energized, um, you know, maybe a walk or uh, I do um, offer yoga uh, for people of any size. So, so that's another alternative. That's one of the very, very healing things to do is yoga. Uh, helps you connect as well with your, your body. Yeah, so, very mindful movement. Yep. Yeah, mindful, um, something that's, like I said, energizing, but uh, shifting that focus from really working out hard at the gym to doing something that makes you feel good or that's fun to do. We always, you know, we want to have fun too. That's, that's part of life. Um, and number 10 is honor your health with gentle nutrition. So that's the last point because because we need to set everything else up first, really. Um, and making food choices in terms of nutrition, making food choices that really taste good while making you feel good. So understanding what foods make you feel good. How do you feel after eating certain foods? Um, and adding more foods, you know, adding more foods to your plate to make it more exciting, to give you more nutrients, um, it just you know it's uh it's the last point but it's it's a very important point as well so yeah it speaks to that point also about respecting your body right and being mm-hmm. you know just feeding it not just good things according to what someone said was a good thing right but what feels mm-hmm. good yeah and, and yeah. really tuning into what you know because we might initially think well, it feels really good for me to eat like five cupcakes a day. And maybe it does initially, right? Mm-hmm. But then as you become more in tune with your body and how it works and how things feel and like the energies that foods have, you might realize, well, you know what? One cupcake a day is feels better for me than having five, right? Well, people worry about this too. They worry that, oh, if I'm allowed to eat anything I want to eat, I'm going to eat cupcakes every day. I'm so glad but you brought that up because I was going to ask you that. <laughs> But you know what? It's it's not true. It's not true. There's such a thing as called uh, habituation response. So um, when you have, if you've not allowed yourself to eat cupcakes, say, for years and years, and it's been a forbidden food, maybe when you start to eat them, you're going to eat more of them. Oh, that makes sense. You've been, it's, it's like a teeter-totter right? Restriction. And then now you're suddenly allowed to have cupcakes. Well, and then some people think, well, I'm going to eat them for the rest of my, you know, I'm going to eat them every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, but once you start eating them, um, you're going to be habituated to that. Like it's, it's, once you give yourself something that you haven't had for a while, it is normal to swing on that uh, teeter-totter but the more you have them and the more you know that those are allowed, they're not going to be taken away or they're not just for special occasions, the more you're not really going to want them. I mean, yeah. I've had people actually, um, uh, and we do this, <laughs> is to find one of those foods that have, have been on their forbidden foods list and we do an experiment with it. And some people, uh, like an eating experiment, and some people really allow themselves to have it and they're like you know what I really didn't like that cupcake like that didn't really really taste very good to me but they were craving it for so long because they mm-hmm. were just restricting themselves <laughs> absolutely themselves yeah. but after a while you know um it's it's just like any other food it mm-hmm. really becomes like just any other food 
Yeah. And I could speak to that too. I've been practicing <clears throat> eating this way more and more uh, lately. Mm -hmm. And it is true because when, you know, in the past when I'm like, no, no, you know, I can't, you know, have a snack after seven, I have to like, you know, do an intermittent fast or I don't know what I was, you know, whatever you name the thing I was doing. Um, and I was regimented and strict about it. Um, I guess what, like 705 would come and I'd be like, oh my God, I'm craving something, right? Yes. Whereas now it's just like, yeah, like I do do a light intermittent fast only because it helps my digestion feel better, but I'm not, you know, it's not because I have to and like I'm trying to do something or lose weight or, you know, any of that craziness. And what happens is like 705 comes and like my partner might grab the bag of chips because he wants to snack and he's like, do you want some? And I'm like, actually, I don't, like I really don't. And it's not coming from, that restrictive thing, because I've, you know, like I'm trying to punish myself with a diet or be really like strict about something. So I, I really, yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I'm noticing that with myself now as well. And actually uh, chronic dieters have more cravings. Yeah. I, well, I agree. I, 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 I mean, again, I just, I, I could be the Guinea pig here and speak from experience. And that does happen because again, there's that deprivation, um, mentality. And I love like studies and science. And um, I have looked at a lot into the addiction model, um, just be learning about different foods and stuff. But I would love to, you know, even learn more about this other viewpoint. Um, you know, maybe we'll write a blog. And we'll put some of this stuff in there for the audience. So that's listening. Absolutely. If you want to learn more, Stephanie's uh, one of our amazing practitioners, and she also provides blog content for us. So yeah, maybe that's a, a great one for an upcoming blog, Stephanie. That sounds great. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been super informative. I know personally, I've gotten a lot out of this interview and I really loved having you on. And I thank you so much, uh, not just for being here and sharing your wisdom, but also being part of our amazing team at Blue Hive. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being here, Stephanie. And if anyone wants to check out more about Stephanie and her services and some upcoming programs that she's going to be part of, including our uh, Kickstart Your Emotional Eating, um, that's going to be on uh, www.bluehivehealth.com. And you can find all of our services there. Stephanie, thank you again from the bottom of my heart for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Giovanna. I, I absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Blue Hive HealthCast. For more information on our programs or on what you've learned here today, contact us by visiting bluehivehealth.com.